Welcome to Holy Fools and the Soul of Craftwork. I am Jesse Joyner. And I'm Stephen Gross. Jesse and I are PhDs in education and people of faith with a curiosity about craft learning and practice as a means of spiritual formation. Jesse, those are good templates. We got those templates down right now. True. True. Hey, if you didn't get a chance to listen to the previous episode in which we interviewed blacksmith and horse farrier Bear Reed, it's a good idea to pause and give that a listen first because this episode is based on that. And we hope to go from entertainment now to education. So what can the craft of blacksmithing teach us? Well, let's find out. But before we do, Jesse, what were some of your initial reactions to Bear's interview? Yes. So Bear is definitely a solid guy. And... And I mean solid when you talked about getting kicked by a horse and sent across the yard 15 feet. Uh, and, he, and yes, he did have a lot of great stuff to say about being a farrier and his participation in the community of farriers. And that was really what jumped out to me. Uh, like in particular, uh, one of the stories he told was about an experienced farrier who uh, was mm-hmm. – holding him accountable and told bear to either put in the work or stop wasting other people's time. And so bear said, the guy had basically said this, you have a calling on your life and you have to walk in it, quit making excuses. So the, this gentleman cared, cared for two things. He cared for bear as a person and he cared for the vocation of farriers. It's like he cared for the person and the profession. You remember that part where he was talking about uh, dissecting horse legs? Yes. Yeah. Tell tell us about that, your take on that. Like that was Texas truth right there. Yeah. You know, like no nonsense, really like you got to get in there. Uh You got to get your hands dirty. Yeah. You have to do the work together to grow in the work and you have to be not so thin skinned and fragile that you won't accept it. Yeah. There was a veterinarian giving a lecture about the anatomy of a horse, but a veteran farrier pulled him aside and they went over to a bucket of horse legs and began to do a joint dissection of those tendons and i mean literally getting into the muck and the grime of their vocation together learning shoulder to shoulder while an abstract lecture was going on so that was just a really good picture of what craft practice is working shoulder to shoulder with somebody more experienced and then learning and asking questions and doing the work together so steve does that mean that if if you and I were dissecting horse legs shoulder to shoulder. Would that make us neighbors? Oh, you're a dirty punter. Yes. Very I'm so nay. sorry. Yeah, you're well, nay. What on about that. learning? <laughs> yeah. Nay. So, what about learning concepts? Did the interview dredge up? Because that's our hope is to take what we heard, now grind it into learning and our own growth. Yeah. I, I couldn't help but think about the idea of guilds and, mm-hmm. uh, trades and the vocations uh, in his interview, because this is one of those just very pans dirty uh, kind of trades. And unfortunately, something that in today's modern society, we've kind of lost touch with the the trades, the hands-on trades. And yeah, part of this podcast is trying to talk about the, the, the sacred value of these trades and what we can learn and grow in them. But thinking about guilds, especially like guilds, they were huge throughout Europe for hundreds of years, from about the year 1000 to 1800. It was it was the rage yep. of Europe were guilds. Here's something I didn't really know, is that guilds 
often these guilds in Europe, they started out with really good intentions. They got together and they would form a mission statement, if you will, or an ordinance. Oh. And I'll read two of them as examples. So the Hosier's Guild Ordinance of Paris in the year 1268, this is what they said. This ordinance is for the good and profit of the craft and commonality of the people, the Hosier's Guild. Uh, and then the Silk Twisters in Toledo of 1627, you know, the Silk Twisters ah, Guild. Yeah. Everybody knows them. Uh, their kind of founding principles, one of them is the guild assembly and ordinances are most important for the public good and utility. So, but like both of those statements have a a theme of common good and serving the commonwealth of the of the people around them. But here's what Ogilvy con concluded in her massive book. <laughs> she actually said that the guilds were more evil than good in yeah. how they uh, acted out in society. She went so far as to say they were cartelish, like they were like cartels. <laughs> So, so these guilds would have these good intentions at the beginning, but then they would become these very like inward serving societies that would serve the members of the societies and would benefit really the the, the tradespeople themselves more so than the, the common good of the public and uh, price fixing and things where they, they would secretive. basically, yeah, they, yeah, secretive, they would just serve themselves. But Bear said something that I think really uh, helps us think, well, not all is bad about the idea of guilds. I think the idea of guilds is a good thing, but there's a good way to do them and a bad way to do them. And obviously, a lot of these ones in Europe, they they turned very inward because they stopped thinking about serving the common good. Um, Bear made that comment about how in the 80s, there were these uh, mentor farriers that uh, decided that they were going to change the whole paradigm of the industry and stop being so inward focused and instead start looking outward and inviting other people into their trade and sharing the yeah. the skills of the trade with other people, like passing it on, it, like opening it up and not being so closed and secret with their trade. And he said that changed everything. And it kind of showed him that you can work a trade and you can do it in a way that's abundant that it, that comes from a spirit of abundance and of sharing and of generosity and that there's enough to go around for everybody um kind of not living in fear but living in in that idea that god has given us this and we can use it to serve others and there's plenty to go around for everybody i think we need to just view trades and and guilds and vocations in a way that let's treat them uh the way those mentors of bears did, where we use them not to be selfish and greedy, but we instead uh, use our gifts and talents to serve others. Well, in the guild system, we would, in, in literature now, in academic literature, that would be called more community of the practice. True. Yeah. Groups of people that are formed around a common shared purpose of usually like a type of work or craft. And uh, they gather around it for the for the sake of the craft itself, but so that they can learn together as a community of the craft, negotiate meaning within the craft. In my research, I did find the Ruos Jugglers. They were a guild of jugglers in Paris in the 1300s. And they it's like they had a street. Like that's that's what Rue is, like road. So they had a street and on the street, they had like their little kind of commune or community uh, and they were the jugglers, but they built a little hospital. They built a little chapel. But what they would do is they would 
They would use their guild to apprentice young people on their craft. Okay, that's a good thing. Establish marketing standards. Again, another good thing. And maintain the quality of their performance art. Those that that is a good thing. So, by the way, I don't want to I don't want to say here that like guilds are bad. I'm trying to say that there's a good way to do them and a bad way to do them. You know. Yeah. So, but here's an example where they had some good things going for them. This guild in particular built built the hospital and chapel in their little community in service of the shared good of society. And the chapel was dedicated to Saints Julian and Genois in the year 1331. But you know, there won't be quiz on that later, I don't think. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> when, when I learned how to juggle, if I could just talk about the juggling community practice today now, because it was there in Paris in the 1300s. Today, there's juggling clubs all over the world and we have festivals. These are informal gatherings of jugglers and there's even competitions and awards are given out. But at these festivals, it's a lot of informal time of just hanging around a gym, juggling with other jugglers, learning from one another side by side and like talking shop and chatting about our craft and our art. And there's a lot of negotiation of meaning that goes on in, in these spaces where we talk about our craft, we define the terms of our craft. We, uh, we explore the innovative ways to do juggling and, and explore new ways of doing it. And it's, it's a joy to get together with all these jugglers. And there's even like, if a juggler makes up a trick, you might get that trick named after you, like in the juggling community, yeah. which is kind of cool. It's like 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 meaning is given to to new tricks, even based on like who created it. What are some of the tricks? What what are the names attached to them? I mean, the two common ones that come to my mind. One of the most famous ones is called Mills Mess, and it's named after a guy named Steve Mills. And Mills Mess is this. Th it's primarily a, usually a three ball pattern. People can do it with four and five, but you uh, you're basically like crisscrossing your arms continuously and the balls are going in this pattern that when someone's looking at it, it looks like a mess, but it's organized chaos. And it's, a, it's actually one of the most, I think, beautiful yeah. juggling patterns to do. It just feels so smooth once you get it down and yet it looks so crazy. So it's called Mills Mess. There's another one similar. It's called Burke's Barrage named after a guy named Ken Burke. And uh, and it's just a, it's a barrage of, of objects going everywhere. Yeah. I think the difference between dark and light in a guild is kind of the, the heart of the practitioners is the heart turned inward or is the heart turned outward? Yeah. I mean, I think it's as simple as that. Um, yeah. is, is your heart turned towards greed and profit and selfishness or is your heart turned towards, wow, how can I share this abundant joy of this work? with other people inviting others into this craft and uh doing the craft for the benefit of others around me so if i want to do that then i need to do the craft as better as best as i can and the more people yeah. i get gathered around it the better the craft can get yeah a very abundance lack of suspicion and i think that's what we're trying to draw forward is that can actually be in a bunch of different vocations mm. that can be the tone of working together but it isn't necessarily and it usually isn't accidentally Communities of practice was pretty central to my dissertation. So I've done a good bit of thinking about that. And historically speaking, shielding a newcomer from access to a guild's core work was actually considered illegal and a breach of a craft training contract. So in his research of the Dutch guild system that operated in pre-industrial Netherlands, so Antwerp, think 15, 16, 17th century, historian Brett de Monk found that an expectation of craft learning included access to the type of authentic work that 
is at the core of a vocation. So he combed through, it was probably thankless work, but he combed through the archives of the city of Antwerp and found that there were a number of court cases in which apprentices had brought their masters to court in breach of the apprenticing contract because at different points, certain masters were unwilling to absorb the cost of letting apprentices get messy, fail, and do the costly errors to expensive materials that were necessary for them to learn a trade and a craft. And I'll put the the book in the show notes. It's definitely not one that anyone's going to buy. There's probably 10 copies, like most academic books. But it showed that historically, that was just a given. It was understood that if you were going to learn a craft, you were given access to the community to practice so that you were put next to veterans and you could work shoulder to shoulder with them to see the things they were seeing, to ask questions, and then for you yourself to make iterative efforts and to mess it up. So it appears that both then and and in certain vocations now, there's an expectation that people learn by grappling with the challenges of their core work together. I mean, getting together with people more experience and having access to it, which is a pretty rare thing. In my own study of craft learning, I attempted to try to explain kind of what are the mechanisms or the mechanics of learning that occur when a novice engages in practice with a more veteran practitioner. So whether it's a training of midwives, I studied bakers, custom boat builders, therapists, and I found that there's an embodied instruction that can't be transmitted in an abstract content lecture sort of way, but has to be gained working in close proximity to others. Even as an EMT, I did all the different kind of academic study to get the certification, but there were some things you can only learn in the back of an ambulance. I think that's kind of what Bear was trying to communicate, this rich access that he was given to learn from people further into the practice of blacksmithing and horse farrying but also then who would do some of the work with them. And that's how our relationships deepen. We do work together with other people and we get to know them. We get to trust them. We also probably become more vulnerable to ask, what am I doing wrong? Or to receive, here's what you're doing wrong. Yeah, it's an attitude of humility. Yeah. I think most vocations lack that structure model of life on life learning. So in that case, conveners are key. And Bear picked up on that. The, the farriers in the 80s, who are willing to basically call out the folly of doing their vocation in a secret, silo, protective way. I mean, in his words, he just calls it stupid. So yeah. those guys called that out to say, it's it's folly to do what we're doing, all working in isolation. So let's do this together. But those were key conveners with credibility who could serve their vocation by opening it up. When I was right out of high school, I got a job, a summer job as an electrician's helper, like on the construction yeah. field. And I graduated high school on a Saturday and on Monday morning at seven in the morning, I showed up at this residential home under construction for my job. It was seven bucks an hour or something, which was a lot of money back in 1998. <laughs> and yeah. I knew nothing about electrical wiring of houses or anything. I was I was wet around the ears. I was green. And I, I walked in, I had a couple tools on me that they told me to bring. Uh, and the first thing they did is they, they paired me up with a master electrician and like a yeah. journeyman. And he took me to one of the outlets in the, in the, the not yet built wall. It was just this little box with no wall around it, but the wiring was, was kind of sticking out this, this guy. In fact, I, 
yeah, his name was Craig, really good electrician, really good guy. He knelt down, big guy. He kneels down right next to me and side by side, shoulder to shoulder. He showed me how to wire a receptacle, like how to, how to, you know, strip the wire. He showed me that he might've showed me one more, like how to do a, uh, like a ceiling fan, you know, rough in too. He showed me the receptacle and then one of the light fixtures and I was paying close attention. And then he was like, okay, go do all the rest of the receptacles around the house now. <laughs> yeah. And, and I did, I just, I, I played dumb, which I was, and I followed his instructions and I, but he showed me like with his hands and I'm right there in front of it all, how to do it. And then I went around and, and did it and just copied him. And I still remember that moment. I remember that moment of him taking the time to show me how to do that. And he, that same guy showed me so many other things about the electrical trade as this, the four summers that I did it. Um, and I'm, I'm so thankful for that kind of learning when you get to do it side by side with somebody. Well, that brings up a great question. Of, so let's say you find yourself in a vocation that doesn't have that built-in apprentice model. How do we create a community of practice where there isn't one? Because I think it's a fair challenge to faith-based veterans in a vocation to figure and to ask themselves, am I creating a hospitable space for newcomers to work and to get experience? And am I willing to absorb the cost of them trying things and then walking alongside of them to, to provide feedback? That's a hospitality. It doesn't happen accidentally, especially in those vocations where there isn't a pathway. So I think that brings us toward our foolish learning challenge, which has probably two prongs, one to veterans and one to newcomers in a vocation. Yeah, my challenge for all of us thinking through this, those of us, those of you who are listening, my challenge is what is a step you can take to serve the work in your field of practice? And I get that phrase, serve the work from the author, Dorothy Sayers. Like she talks about serving the work as a way of, of serving the industries in which we we do our work. This can come in the form of inviting someone into your work, like to explore joining your field of practice uh, or doing something that helps advance the study of your vocation in general. It could be um, thinking of new ways to do your work, innovating on things and sharing that with the community of practice that you're a part of. I can't help but think of the three P's that are in organizational leadership. When people talk about like a good company these days, they, they have the three P's people, profit and planet, you know, like you're, you're making money, you're, you're uh, taking care of the people that you're, that are in your workforce. And you're also taking care of the planet with the, with the strategies of your company. I want to add a fourth one. And that would be practice or profession. It, it's not fire that you can use either of those P's practice or profession. That's a good company, I think, or a good organization is when you are serving the work. So think of ways that you can serve your work, whatever that is this week. So that might look like starting small and in inviting people into your practice, newcomers are opening that up or. Yeah. Identifying a young person that maybe they're still trying to figure out what to do with their lives and you can help. Yeah. Give any examples of, somebody who invited you in? I do. I do. I, I just thought of one. There's a, there's a man named Roger Fields and I owe a lot to him. Roger was uh, a man at my church when I lived in Kentucky at the time. I was a new children's pastor. So I was hired onto this church to be their children's pastor. And Roger Fields was a member of the church, but he himself had a lot of experience in the field of children's ministry. 
And when I met him, he invited me to this thing called Children's Pastors Conference, which was, as you can, as from the name, it's a conference for children's pastors. And that was that opened my eyes to a world of practitioners of a very specific uh, practice. And I, it's like I found my people. I met a lot of people that had shared the same kind of heart that I had uh, and was overall just encouraged in that. And I'm so thankful that Roger invited me into that at the beginning because it invited me into a world of, of fellow practitioners um, that, that I want to invite people into as well. And I try to do that to this day. Yeah, we have a debt that we owe to the people that go before us. Yeah, yeah, who have invited us into these places, yeah. And let us see their own practice. Yeah. What's a learning uh, challenge you want to give our listeners, Steve? So mine comes from the other end. Yours is toward veterans to thinking about opening up their practice. Mine is towards newcomers to think about seeking to grow and get feedback and and get access. Because the truth is, is that a lot of times the people that are credible practitioners of whatever work you're going after and seeking to get better at won't offer feedback unless it's asked for. And that's probably the nature of of certain work in general is that oftentimes the people that are the least credible are the most vocal. So if you're going to curate the feedback that you need, you're going to have to seek that out. So my foolish learning challenge is to think about this. How might you develop a thicker skin and seek feedback from someone in your own vocation about an aspect of your work that you want to improve? So in the language of guilds, Is there a master or a veteran journeyman that you can get access to? Again, you'll have to seek that access. And when you get it, not to waste that person's time. Such a big deal. I think one of the lamentable things was in a previous interview that we did with master juggler David Kane. I mean, he's probably the most decorated, one of the most decorated jugglers in the world. Yeah. 16 world champion records and Guinness Book World Record champions. He's been juggling for multiple decades has written a bunch of books on juggling he is as experienced as it comes and and one point in his interview he said that he had put out an ad into the juggler community or an announcement that he was willing to mentor somebody and no one took him up on it so that's a strange thing but i think it is it's not common in some vocations to seek out feedback especially when you know that that feedback is going to be in something you're passionate about it- sounds to me that you're getting at humility on the side of the person who wants to be mentored. Like we, if we want to approach a more experienced person in our trade, we do need to be humble and we need to be open and willing to hear the hard stuff from them. And most, and most of us don't. And so, so like maybe that's a challenge to those of us who are experienced. Sometimes we do need to take the action and go get somebody and tell them the hard, hard stuff and say, Hey, I see, I see you have a gift and a talent. You, you need to come with me and learn how to do this because I see something in you. Um, we don't always have to wait around for them to come to us. Yeah. It's a both end. Hopefully it is. And that's what a community of practice can become is it's convened usually by a credible master veteran practitioner, but it can also be fueled by a newcomer that's passionate about the work And so that's how a newcomer can actually serve the practice is by bringing that passion and being teachable about it. And I think for followers of Christ, that's, that's really our calling is to be teachable and humble and say, I don't know what I'm doing. And I want you to, to speak to me. I want to be, I want to be discipled into this, into this trade access to veterans that are willing to absorb the cost of having you try and fail and learn 
and help you count the cost of what it takes to grow in the mastery of any vocation, that's a rare treasure. So if you can find it, take it. So that's the bones underneath that learning transfer question is how much you develop a thicker skin because you'll need that and seek the feedback from someone in your vocation about an aspect of your work that you want to open up to them and improve. So who can you find? Who can you say, I'll take all of your feedback, including the stuff that I probably don't want to hear, but I definitely know I need to hear and I have to get to get better. That's hard for everybody just to lay that on the table. It's hard for me as a minister to invite people in. And I, I'm I'm blessed with a couple different retired ordained ministers who are actually in my services when I preach and teach. So they, if I seek the feedback, it's there. And I think that's probably true for us. There are people around us, if we go after them, that will say, yep, but you'll have to curate that. Otherwise, the feedback you get may not be the feedback that will grow you. It's a two-way street, like you said. Two-way street. That yeah. Part. Yeah. Well, so this conversation we're having is in December. We won't talk until we won't talk again until after Christmas. So what are your Christmas plans, Jesse? Our Christmas plans are staying here. We're not going anywhere or on any trips and we love that. It's it we're gonna be in our neighborhood and we're gonna uh worship at our church on Christmas Eve. And um, but the Sunday before that we have a like a carol sing in like in in the little chapel at our church. Oh, what are you what are you doing for Christmas? Yeah. Um yeah, we have a Christmas Eve service and we do our presents at night, as all good Christians do. I don't know. Are you guys morning? on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day? Christmas Eve. Christmas sure. Eve. Okay. What do you guys do? We do Christmas when do those morning. Presents crack. Oh. Christmas morning. Yeah. We're pagans. Yeah. That's good. Well, you guys have a good Christmas and uh to all the listeners as well. Have a Merry Christmas. Yeah, and when you're listening and to this, happy January. It will be January when you listen to this, so perfect time to think about a foolish learning challenge as you get set up for a new year and all those resolutions. Yes, we're going to add one to you. True. All right. Well, till then, goodbye. Goodbye. This episode of The Soul of Craftwork is brought to you by the Roaring Fork Fellows Program. Are you a 19 through 29 year old interested in starting well in your career with a strong faith and work foundation? The Roaring Fork Fellows Program is a nine month internship for young adults located between Aspen and Vail in the Roaring Fork Valley of Colorado. For more information, go to roaringforkfellows.com.